Hi, I'm Chester from Styling Dissolution Online Academy, and today I'm interviewing another great friend of mine, John Harrison from America. Honestly, I consider John as one of the gurus in the field of stuttering. He used to be a stutterer himself, but he claims he's not anymore. I met John four or five years ago, around 2003 or 2004. And honestly, I believe he has a lot to share when it comes to stuttering and your stuttering dissolution journey. Therefore, like I have done with other stuttering success stories, I asked him to share his thoughts and ideas with you. And he said, yes, with no hesitation. Thanks once again for being here, John. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, I grew up with a stuttering problem. It was, uh, I identified really early when I was three years old, but it wasn't a problem until I got to about fifth grade in school, and it was always strange in that I could talk to my friends in the classroom and out on the uh, playing on the athletic field but uh, when I had to stand in in class or stop a stranger on the street or speak to an authority figure I would have all kinds of 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 difficulty and that was about the worst example of how I spoke. I didn't speak that way all the time. But in some instances, I did. And in other instances, I was very fluent. And I really didn't understand the problem very well. Well, I dealt with stuttering in my life for roughly 30 years. And I say roughly 30 years, but the last for five years it was starting to slowly disappear for reasons which I will tell you about shortly. It had a big impact on my life because it made life very uncertain. If I wanted to... uh, Well, imagine that... I tell people who, who have not had this problem, imagine that you're walking along the street and all of a sudden from out of nowhere, a fist comes and it goes like this and knocks you in the face. It doesn't hurt you very hard, but it startles you and you say, well, where did that come from? And you don't know. And then you stop at a newsstand to buy a newspaper and as you're talking to the to the fellow behind the uh, newsstand, all of a sudden this fist comes and knocks you on the face. And again, it doesn't hurt you, but this is becoming very disarming and annoying and then you may go into a restaurant and order something to eat 
and you order everything fine, but when you go to uh, ask for a Coca-Cola, all of a sudden this hand hits you and and startles you. And that, to me, was what was so disarming about stuttering, and that is it was so unpredictable. Some people stutter on every word, and that creates a whole different set of problems. But with me, it was different because I didn't stutter on every word, but sometimes I stuttered more, and it was very unpredictable, and it was this constant thing coming out of the blue. And... Uh, and striking me. So it made life very uncertain for me. Uh, so that was one of the ways that I was affected. And I always believed that, well, if I didn't stutter, if I didn't block, uh, well, I would do this and that, and I would speak and speak and so on and so forth. And in retrospect, thinking back to what my life was like and who I was, I realized that I was just fooling myself. What I discovered over time was that stuttering is not a speech problem per se. It's a problem with the experience of difficulties with the experience of communicating to other people. In other words, it's not just about speech. It's about you. It's an entire System. I call it the stuttering system, or specifically I call it the stuttering hexagon, because from my experiences, there are six parts to the hexagon. There are, first of all, your behaviors, your emotions, your beliefs, your perceptions, your intentions, and your physiological makeup. And it's not any one of these per se that creates the problem. It's how all of these elements interact into one system. You'll find that when it comes to stuttering, people will say, oh, well, uh, I believe it's, uh, it's psychological. And somebody says, oh, well, I believe it's physical. And somebody says, oh, I believe it's genetic. And to all of these things, I would say, yes, it is all of those things. But, but none of them by themselves create the problem. It's the way they interact. And that is what I have come to understand and now I have been recovered from stuttering for longer than I care to admit to but it's something over 40 years yeah we have met a long time ago not a long time ago but a couple of years ago and you were one of the people that I actually when I observed you really carefully because everybody said you were recovered so I was like let me see if he really recovers. So I was just going crazy to find out a, a simple block or a repetition on your pitch so that so that I can just go ahead You're and... waiting uh, for me to block, right? Yeah, true. But I think what I'm trying to say here is that people usually focus on the fluency a lot that for us being recovered is just perfect fluency. And it gave me hope. Well, it gave me hope that this can be done because until that time I thought, well, you can improve it, but you have to learn to live with it. However, after meeting you and observing you really, really carefully, I was like, wow, there is hope 
and now I know that it can be done, which was a breakthrough for me. Yeah, the the problems of stuttering, because of the nature of the problem, this being a performance sphere, uh, create additional problems, and it becomes self-supporting. The fear of stuttering creates more holding back and more blocking, which then creates more difficulty, which creates more fear, and it becomes cyclical. The problem is, is that people think that because the fear of stuttering is a, uh, is a problem, is something they fear, they believe it's the only fear, the only trigger, and it's not. Because at some point, when I was about 30 years old, I had gotten to a point where I didn't block anymore. And guess what? I had all the same fears. I had all the same issues. I had all the same perfectionistic uh, challenges to deal with. I had all the same doubts. I had all of the same things. So it became obvious to me that the blocking was only... Well, I found other ways to block. I would stand up and forget what I was going to say. That's that's another kind of block. That's a memory block. Uh I would have issues about asserting myself. And one of the things you will discover, if you haven't already, about people in the stuttering world, is that self-assertion becomes a major problem, a major issue. And when people start moving towards recovery, one of the things that they first have to deal with is some clarification about self-assertion and what it means and what rights they have and what freedoms they give themselves in order to be who they are. It's a very, it's a pretty complex problem uh, because it involves the whole person. And unless you're willing to look at it as a whole person issue, you're going to be limited in what, in what you uh, can do. Uh, on the internet, I have uh, a lot of articles, and I have a book. It's 485 pages. Uh, it's a PDF book, and it's free. And it's called Redefining Stuttering. It's a book that I wrote uh, over about 23 years. I have articles from other people in there. And it really looks at, at all of the many different issues and the nature of this problem. Near the, near the end of the book, there is an article I wrote called The Feeling of Fluency, which I just reread last night. I think it's pretty good, actually. And the thing is that fluency is not just about not having blocks. Fluency is a state of mind that applies to all kinds of things. Dancers have fluency. Painters have fluency. Uh, race car drivers have fluency. Uh, ballet dancers have fluency. Speakers have fluency. But it's not about not having blocks. It has to do with just letting go. So fluency is about flow. It's about surrendering to the moment. It's about getting out of your own way, which normally is what people do when they speak anyway, except for us very early. Speaking became a performance now, it is for a lot of people. I teach public speaking classes in San Francisco. And almost everybody who comes to the workshop 
has grown up with a belief that speaking is a performance. And why is it that way? Because in school, that's how we learn it. When we stand up in, in the classroom, what are, what are our considerations? Well, uh, we, we want to impress the teacher. We want to get a good grade. Uh, we don't want to look foolish to our classmates. Uh, we want to look good. And as a result, speaking, instead of just a pro- the process of self-expression and communication, becomes a performance. And then what happens is that we graduate from school, we go on to university, we leave university, we go out in the world, and for most people, speaking is still a performance. It's still a performance. Whereas the people who are really good speakers, and one I can think of off the top right now is President Barack Obama. Uh, and he is, he's a brilliant speaker. Bill Clinton in the same way. But Obama in particular... And he's not performing. He's just being. He's being Barack Obama. He's communicating as Barack Obama. He's connecting with people. And speech is not a performance for him. But it is for us. Because that's how we grew up thinking about it. And then we have all these other additional problems that get all caught up in that same holistic system, as I call it. Holistic because it involves the whole of you. And so in order to truly get past this problem, you have to have a shift in thinking, a shift in perception, a shift in self-perception, a change in beliefs, a clarification of what your uh, more profound intentions are, and, and the big one, the big one, is trust. You have to be willing to trust. So it's a, it's a complicated problem. When you say trust, is it the trust that you have to yourself or to others? Uh, both, but mainly toward mainly to yourself. It would be like um, oh, I liken this to uh, people doing more extreme sports, like people. Uh, doing the X Games or people uh, skiing the downhill or race car drivers or people who can walk on a, on a high wire. Um, they have to be able to let go and just trust that if they do the right thing, it will work out. I can remember watching in the gymnastics, in the Olympics, uh, some extraordinary things, but the thing that I find most amazing... And I still do. I, I don't know how. I can't believe that people learn how to do it. You know the balance beam where they have that little little beam and then you have to be able to do turns and flips and handstands and stuff? Well, one of the ways to mount the balance beam is, uh, is the gymnast runs up to the, uh, the balance beam and there's a springboard right underneath it. And she jumps on the springboard and she comes up, she does a forward flip and lands on this narrow beam about this big. How can you do it if you're trying to control what you're doing? You can't. At some point, you have to practice it and practice it and then surrender and allow something else to take over control. And people who do things extremely well, whatever it is, 
that's the mindset that they have. And normally that's the way speaking evolves. Children don't learn how to consciously speak. They do it unconsciously. They try, they fail, they try, they fail, they try. And then they get a little better and then they fail and then they try and then they fail and then they try and get better. And little by little, their subconscious brain is mastering this process of speaking until they get to a point where they just do it. It's like learning to ride a bicycle. You remember how it was before you could actually stay up on the bicycle? I can remember that very well. And I can remember thinking, I'll never get this because I just won't be able to. And I remember when I was little, my father would uh, run next to the bicycle holding the seat up and I'd be pedaling and uh, then he'd let me go a little ways and that'd start to wobble and so then he'd grab the seat again. And then one day uh, I, I came out and my bicycle was there and my father was not. And I got on the bicycle and I thought, well, I wonder if I can do this and I pushed off and then I was riding, and then I never stopped. Now, there's a certain trust involved there, too. I wasn't consciously staying balanced, but on some level, my subconscious, which is much more powerful than my conscious mind, uh, had taken over control of this process. Mm -hmm. So, this is a very big subject. And we could probably go for, and I have gone for hours and hours and hours of talking about it, but maybe this gives you a little bit of the sense of what I've discovered about this problem in the process of recovering and also then becoming a speaker. Mm -hmm. Very valuable information, John. And here, I'm sure if I go out and talk to 100 starters and ask them that, I will be talking to Jan Harrison, who is a recovered starter. What would you like to ask him? And I'm sure 99 people out of that 100 would ask, how did he do it? So can you tell us a bit about your journey and how you actually did it? Okay. Let me let me tell you. Let, let me give you an overview of what happened. Well, as I mentioned and as I demonstrated, I had a problem in school, and it was uh, it wasn't a problem. I didn't have the real visible struggle behaviors that made me look weird, like some some people who who stutter, talking like that, and I wouldn't do that. So I would just have the silent block. Um, but uh, I didn't know what it was. I really didn't have any speech therapy. Uh, I had some when I was four and a half years old, but I don't think it was much, and it didn't really do anything. And uh, and to some degree, and I know some speech pathologists uh, may not like what I'm going to say, but it was to my advantage being who I was, that I didn't have any speech therapy because I did not get uh, programmed with all of the concepts that you find in traditional speech therapy, one of which being you have to learn to control your speech. My, my blocking was not such that I needed to control it. it. 
in a sense, it was very obvious to me that I was over-controlling what I was doing and I couldn't get words out. But anyway, um, I, in my, I think it was the, my senior year of high school, in the summertime, I did go back to uh, a place in New York uh, that dealt with stuttering. It's called the National Hospital for Speech and Hearing Disorders. And there was a group that met, I think, once a week or something like that. I don't remember exactly. And I can't remember what we did. There was not nothing about therapy, I don't think. But I don't know. We just talked. I don't remember much about it. But I came back from that at the end of the summer. I didn't come back. At, at the end of the summer, I had gotten to a place where I could use the word stutter. Up until that point, I wouldn't even use the word stutter if my father raised the word uh, I would say I don't stutter I hesitate um, but anyway so uh, I went off to university and when I first got when I first got there they give you all these tests to find out how good your foreign language skills are uh, how how good your foreign language skills are and whether you have any uh, speech difficulties like lisps or this or that and uh, so I could uh, I, w- I thought that um, I really didn't want anybody to discover anything about me so uh, when I went in for the test I read the paragraph without blocking and I thought thank God I got through that and then when I got back to the uh, the dormitory I thought, uh, well, wait a minute. Now I'm going to deal with all my fears about speaking in class. And did I actually win anything? Actually, it wasn't quite that fast. It took me several weeks of thinking about this. And finally, uh, I decided that I needed to do something about my discomfort around speaking. So uh, I think it was probably in my second year, I took a, a public speaking class. And, of course, one of the talks that I gave was on stuttering. It was the first time I had done that, and that was very good. But I was really helped by the the professor because he knew that uh, I had dealt with a stuttering problem. And he says, uh, and he said, why don't you come in after class one day, and we can talk. I'll see if I can be helpful to you. So I came in, and we talked, and one of the things that he did was to get out some textbooks and some picture books and showed me how speech was produced. And until that time, I didn't know what was happening inside. I had no way to picture this. All I knew was that first I was speaking and then I was blocked and couldn't speak. But after my session, or maybe it was a couple of sessions with him, I had a picture of how speech was produced, and I began to get a sense of what happened when I blocked. And this was uh, this was important because it started to uh, demythify stuttering. It started to be something that I could actually picture and understand uh, that it was not something that happened to me; it was something that I was doing. And that was very helpful. Uh, by the time I uh, 
got out of university, I was, uh, I still dealt with the problem. It wasn't that bad, but it was still a problem. And, uh, as you know, if you have the problem, you got the problem, whether it's severe or not. It's still lurking over you. And now, another real big breakthrough I had, uh, <clears throat> after I was, um, after I got out of university, I was working for my father in his advertising agency in the mailroom for the summer. And one of the things that I had to do was to uh, pick up the telephone once or twice a day. We had a very we had a special telephone. It was a black telephone, and I had to call the Photostat house to have them send over somebody to pick up things that we had that the art department had to get uh, photographed, uh, photostatted. And so it was always uh, a challenge for me because <laughs> um, I wanted to be able to say pick up without doing anything weird or, or strange. And I would pick up the phone and on, on the other end of the phone, there was uh, a voice, and it was always a gruff voice, and it said, yeah, and I'd say, uh, yeah, can you pick up, or I'd, I'd say, mm, hi, pick up, you know, and I would have all of these, these solder ways to get through it, because I just couldn't say the word pick up, and it drove me nuts, because I didn't like running from saying it, but on the same token, uh, at the same token, I was really um, frustrated because I just couldn't say the word. Uh, one, one Monday morning, uh, I came into work. I had a very good weekend. Uh, I had a nice time with my father. We did a, I think we played golf or do, did something like that. And I came in and I was feeling good. Now, usually, we had to, um, I had to make that call in the afternoon. So I would think about it all morning, and I would think about it at lunch hour, and then finally in the afternoon, somebody would ask for a pickup. And this particular morning, I got a call about 10 in the morning before I had a chance to worry about it. Somebody said, we need a pickup now. So I reached for the phone. The voice said, yeah. And I just tried to relax, and I said, pick up, and I didn't block. And then something uh, fascinating happened. I discovered that when I didn't block, there was a huge rush of panic. And I did not know until that moment that behind my speech blocks were these feelings of panic. Because the speech blocks blocked out the panic. So it didn't allow me to go through with the whole process, the whole transaction of speaking, until I guess the, the feeling of panic dropped. But I stayed relaxed. I said, pick up. And I had this, this big rush of feeling. And that was one of the most enlightening moments, I think, in my recovery. Because I discovered that behind the speech block, I had all kinds of feelings that I was trying to keep in, that I was trying to keep together. And that was, um, I mean, I still can remember this today like it happened yesterday. 
Uh, and that opened a big door for me because I realized that there was a lot more going on than just the speech block, whatever it was. And I didn't understand it then, but I was starting to. Mm-hmm. And um, so so then, uh, I don't know how much detail you want because I can go on for hours. So, uh, but But the next thing that happened was in New York City, uh, I went to a uh, program called Dale Carnegie, which was a program that's still running today. They teach you how to uh, interact effectively with with people, and you also have a little bit of public speaking. And in the program, uh, each week they gave you two opportunities to speak. One was for uh, 45 seconds, and I think the other one was a minute, I mean, very short. But you stood up. You spoke, and then the instructor would say a couple of positive things about you, and there would be a lot of applause, and then you'd sit down. And I was, again, really trying not to block, and and there was a whole performance issue every time I stood up. But what was very interesting was this. The first time I stood up and I spoke, and, and once I was done, the 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 instructor said, uh, he said a couple of positive things about what I did. And, uh, and again, there was applause. And I thought, well, I don't believe that. They're just doing it because that's the way you're supposed to do it. And then the second time in class, the same thing. I stood up and didn't, uh, didn't think I did well, but I heard positive things and applause. And that was true for the second week, the third week. The fourth week, and I think it was the the second speech in the fourth week, when the instructor uh, stood up, uh, when I stood up and and spoke, and then the instructor uh, led the applause, and he started, and he once again said positive things about me, and I have to back up here to show you this. It was like my mind was saying, no, I don't believe this. But deep down, it was like, I like this. I like this. Don't stop. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not true. It's not true. Oh, but I like it. Please, please. I, I like all the positive things. I like the applause. But it's And I began to realize that I was starting to enjoy what I was doing because it was a positive experience. And that was, um, I'm not going to say I turned around and never worried about blocking or speaking because I, I still had those issues. But for the first time, I had a sense of what I was looking for. And this is what I do in the public speaking workshops I run for the general public. Until you have the experience of being up in front of people and being yourself and feeling that you're free to be yourself and uh, you're feeling free to have fun, you don't know what you're looking for. You don't know what you're looking for. And if the only thing that you can focus on is not stuttering, then each time you you stand up, you frame the experience as a performance. And that's not what public speaking is all about. It's not about performance. It's about connecting. It's about being. It's about being honest. It's about sharing yourself with other people. It's about allowing your your feelings and your uh your your desire is to be 
to be known and to be manifest. That's that's what public speaking is about. It's about communicating. And until you have the experience at least once of doing that, you don't know that it's even out there. You don't even know what, what it is that you're looking for. So that was really important. And again, that's what I try and do in the workshops. And people who have never had a positive speaking experience suddenly discover that, hey, there's something about this, this which is pretty cool. It's really fun. So at some point, uh, I guess, uh, and I joined, I joined Toastmasters in San Francisco, and I guess at some point I had done enough that, that the, the impulse to hold back and block, uh, really started to disappear. Uh, oh, one other big thing. I also, uh, I came to San Francisco at a time when the whole personal growth movement was starting out here. Uh, you probably read about it, and, uh, but all kinds of things were happening in California. Uh, aside from the LSD and the, and the dope and the hippies and everything else, <laughs> there were people who were, who were exploring uh, who they were, were trying out new ways of connecting and new ways of being and new ways of living. And I got involved, not with the dope and the hippies, but I got involved with the with the self-exploration part. And I did a, a number of things uh, where I began to understand a lot more about who I was. And I began to see all of the other issues that were contributing to this. You know, I had an issue about expressing my feelings. I had an issue about even recognizing my feelings. I didn't even know that I had the feelings that I had. I had big issues around self-assertion. Uh, I had a lot of confusion about who I was. Uh, I came to recognize that, that almost everything I did, I was doing to please other people. Uh, I got to recognize that I, that I didn't know who I was and what I felt half the time because I was so focused on what other people wanted. And that as I have found over 32 years in the stuttering self-help world, is not a unique scenario. This is something that most people who deal with this problem that I've met, that most people deal with. It's a common experience. So I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not, I didn't just address my issues around standing up and speaking, but I I began to address and challenge all uh, myself at all the other points around the stuttering hexagon, my emotions, my perceptions, beliefs, my, my hidden intentions, my physiological makeup I couldn't do much about, but speech behaviors uh, just over time began to dissipate because the things that were driving the holding back, I was starting to relax about. Mm-hmm. So, is this making sense? Makes a lot of sense. In fact, my brain's still processing what you just said. This is this is this is one reason uh, I I finally put the book together. I started writing these essays uh, uh, early on when I was a member of the National Stuttering Association in America, and uh, as I learned new things, I'd write another uh, article. Uh, most of these were published in the NSA newsletter. 
And just over time, I put together a lot of information. It's almost 500 pages now. And, uh, and it goes into all of this. It looks at all the different sides of this problem. Mm-hmm. And until you recognize the nature of the problem, the nature of the problem, it is very hard to come up to, uh, to, to have permanent solutions. Not that it can't be done, obviously, because people do recover. But it's very useful to have a, a, an accurate picture of what it is that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. It's my observation about you, John, that you actually faced your fears. And a lot of us starters have a lot of limiting beliefs. What can they do so that they can start working on their limiting beliefs and challenge them so that they can come to a point where their beliefs starts to change? Yeah. Well, the big thing that you have to do, uh, and that's and that's true with any problem you deal with, is to get out of your comfort zone. Now, this is a term that's used a lot these days, but a comfort zone is the area in which uh, in which you're comfortable. So let me describe what this is. This mm-hmm. I drew two parallel lines that are not very far apart, and this is this. This, uh, this represents your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And uh, y- your emotions, on the other hand, are, are uh, a wave that goes up, and then it goes down, and then it goes up, and then it goes down. And part of it is within the comfort zone, and part of it is outs- outside of the comfort zone. Well, if it's outside of your comfort zone, you tend to be, by definition, uncomfortable. Let's say your comfort zone is to talk like this. I get people who come to my public speaking workshop and uh, they talk in a very even, uh, quiet voice. And I say, so I ask them, I say, is this your normal speaking voice? And they say, well, yes. And at this point I have them up in front of the group because they're going to do something. And I say, well, can you double your perception? Uh, can, I'm, I'm sorry. Can you double your volume? So the person says, yes. I say, well, do it. <laughs> so the person says, all right, now I'm doubling my volume. And I say, how does that feel? The person says, well, uh, it, it, it's uncomfortable. I say, can you accept that it's uncomfortable? Well, yes, okay, fine. Now, would you be willing to double that? So person says, okay, I'll try. So the person doubles their volume, and now they're talking like this. And I say, so that's four times what you're comfortable with, right? person says, yes, I'm, this is four times what I'm comfortable with. And I say, can you, would you be willing to talk for a minute to the people in the, uh, in the group, and we'll raise our hands uh, every time that you fall below that level? And then your challenge then is to increase uh, your your volume in order to uh, drop their hands. So that's what we do, and that's that's what takes place. As the person drops his volume, the hands go up, and he increases his volume. And after the exercise is over, and it's usually for oh I don't know a, a minute or two at the most, uh, I ask the person. I say, well, how was that? 
and the person will say, well, that was uncomfortable. <laughs> I said, great. Uh, on the scale of 1 to 10, 1 being uh, talking in a little quiet voice and 10 uh, being very, very loud, uh, where would you place yourself? And what I'm going to tell you now actually happens, and it happens frequently. person says, well, let's see. Uh, I felt like I was talking at level 9. Level 9. I say, okay, let's do a reality check. So uh, then I ask the people in the audience. I draw a scale on the board, and I say, how many people uh, saw George at, at level 1? Well, no hands go up. Level 2, level 3, no hands. Level 4, usually get hands going up at level 4. Level 5, most of the class raises their hand. Level 6, a few left over. Nobody raises their hands for 7, 8, 9, or 10. And so that's an example of, of how we skew, how we, how we modify our perceptions to fit our comfort level. Uh, this is also called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. And it's cognitive dissonance, in this case, describes the difference between two different perceptions of the same thing. People who stammer, people who stutter, by and large, hold themselves back and have major issues about just letting go and being a big version of themselves. And so when they are, are coming across to, to anybody else as just being alive and assertive and interesting, they feel like they're shouting and pushing and uh, being, being unusually loud or obnoxious. And it's all happening in their head. It's this perception. So one of the challenges is to get people's perception in line with, uh, with what's true. And so as you uh, start doing this, as you start stepping outside of your comfort zone and trying things and really start looking at it in as clear a light as possible, what happens is that you begin to give yourself more room to, to, to express yourself in. In effect, what you're doing is widening your comfort zone. So inst instead of uh, this person only having a comfort zone like this, where this is the only level that they're comfortable with, at some point they can talk like this. And now this is the level that they're comfortable with. Now the advantage in talking at this level is that they can be more emotionally expressive. They can reveal more about who they are. They can have more fun when they speak. They can be more alive. They can be more assertive. And it's because they have changed or widened their, their comfort zone in order to accommodate this added movement, this 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 added uh, uh, opportunity for self-expression, and to and to explore other sides of themselves, and to and to be a bigger person. Okay, so for people, John, you know, let's say they are just starting their journey, and they are willing to do something about this, and they are ready to put whatever effort is necessary in this so that they can get what they want out of this. What would 
be your suggestion? What should their end goal be in this case? Well, I'm not even sure you can talk about end goal. I think what you should probably talk about is your immediate goal. The first thing you have to do is to have a goal that makes sense. Most people who have this problem have goals having to do with fluency. That's the wrong goal. That means that if you're focused on fluency, everything you're looking at has to do with how to perform better. And as long as you cast your speech as performance, you're going to be stuck with this problem, quite frankly. So the first goal is to find a place where you can practice speaking. And it can be like a Toastmaster club or a speaker's club uh uh, some place where you can talk. In order to progress, you have to have an environment there that has both a mixture of safety and risk. If the speaking environment is too safe, like talking to only talking to a speech therapist in his or her office, if that's the only thing you do, you're not preparing yourself for when you walk out of the office and have to deal with the world. So there, so there has to be an element of risk but if it's if it's too much risk then you won't do it <laughs> so there has to be a balance and things like uh, speakers clubs and um, toastmaster clubs are good because they attract people from the general community most of whom don't deal with stuttering but practically all of them deal with stage fright and performance fears so it becomes a very sympathetic audience and uh, this is one of these problems that you live your way into as a child and you have to live your way out of it you have to start building positive experiences so that you live your way out of it and so you have to be in an environment where you can take a risk and try things but still feel safe enough. So if it doesn't work out, uh, it's no big deal. And, uh, I mean, you know, read, read my, <laughs> you gotta read my book and then you'll read a lot <laughs> of the stuff. This is, <laughs> this is hard because I wanna, I wanna tell it to you all at once and it, and it goes on for long. You have. I know that you have met with a lot of people who have done this. So, what's your experience? What are the common patterns you see in all those people? That's a very good question. What are the common characteristics? Uh, all right, let me tell you what I've observed. First of all, the people who have recovered are tend to be curious they tend to be curious. They tend to be curious about why they're feeling what they're doing. Uh, they tend not to take other people's word for things just flat out. But they they approach uh, what they're doing with with something that people who study Zen know as beginner's mind. Forget what people tell you. Look at it freshly and see what comes up. What do you notice? So... The first thing is that people tend to be, people who recover tend to be pretty good observers. 
Secondly, uh, they are willing to tolerate a level of discomfort in the process of exploring this. If you want to keep it safe, or if you're... I mean, some people have stuttering problems that are so severe that 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 every word they 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 uh, they take uh, is a challenge and every speaking situation is uncomfortable but somewhere in some place there has to be a starting point where you are willing to speak and just uh, allow yourself to to talk where you can observe and try things. Uh, Other common patterns are uh, people tend to have, um, they tend to not take things on face value, which relates to what I was saying. Uh, They tend to be intellectually curious. Uh, They tend to try different things. And this is a big one. Uh, the people who recover um, tend to explore in areas not necessarily relating to uh, to stuttering per se, but relating to them as people. Uh, they tend to want to communicate with other people and to and to try things and to find out and to ask questions. Um, having a curiosity and having a will to to try things, you know, one of the things that that I didn't like and still don't like particularly is is heights. I can remember times when it, like in New York City, uh, when I was a child, I went up to the 86th floor observation level of the Empire State Building, which at that time, well, now as well because the World Trade Center was destroyed, uh, was the tallest building in in New York City. And I can remember looking over the edge, looking down 86 floors, and, oh, it was just an awful thing. So I've never liked heights particularly. So so then you might ask, well, how come I ended up jumping out of airplanes? Uh, (laughs) I did that because I wanted to find out about it and because I was uncomfortable with it. And so... uh, it helps if you are counterphobic. You know, counterphobic means that that instead of running from a danger, you're kind of attracted to it because you want to deal with it. It's like having a a, uh, a lion or a tiger. You can either run from it or you can figure out ways to control it and to manage it and to uh, uh, gain control over it. So. People who recover t- tend to uh, want to try things. And if something doesn't work, they don't necessarily get, they don't get discouraged instantly, but they simply notice that, well, that didn't work, and maybe I'm going to try it again or try something a little bit differently. So they're explorers. And I'll tell you, the nature of this problem is such that if you keep looking, if you keep exploring, if you keep trying things, if you keep experimenting, if you keep talking to people, if you keep allowing your mind to be open, at some point you will move out of this narrow uh, 
framework that you have about speech being what you think it is. And it starts to broaden it, and you start to see the connection with all the other aspects of your life. And when you begin to see those connections, now you have a lot more that you can work with. You have a lot more that you can uh, explore, because instead of just focusing on your speech, having tunnel vision on your speech, you're now looking to see how your beliefs are affecting this, and how your emotions are affecting this, and uh, how your perceptions are affecting this, and in particular, how your intentions are affecting this. You you may think that you have an intention to get over uh, stuttering, but but if getting over stuttering means that you have to be self-assertive and you don't have any intention on on being assertive, then you have a contradictory situation. And so these are the things you have to start bringing to light. On the severity of the problem, uh, some people have just a little bit to do in that area and some people have a whole lot. Mm -hmm. I remember we had a chat about this and I remember very well you said divided intention is not going to get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what a speech block, that's what a block is of any sort. I mean, try this. You know, link your hands like this, start pulling with your right hand, and then start pulling with your left hand. And if both of these forces are of equal strength, at this moment, you're blocked. Because you can't go this way, because there's not a, because this side won't let go, and you can't go this side, because this side won't let go. And so you're doing this. So if, if a person is saying, uh, can you give me a piece of... Oh, paper, that's what you're looking at. A desire to speak, a desire not to speak, they call it approach avoidance. And the only reason why you end up getting through the block at some point is that um, emotions don't stay at the same high pitch. And as you are in the situation, the emotion starts to drop. And as the emotion gets back into your comfort level, instead of these two forces of speaking and not speaking uh, being of equal uh, power, at, at some point the forces holding you back weaken and then you get the word out. Mm -hmm. I have a suggestion which I think is extremely important and that is uh, you stop using the word stutter. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because stuttering only looks at a superficial behavior. What, re what is the real problem is the speech block. So if you say, uh, every time I stand, I block, or I have an impulse to block, it raises some, some interesting, it raises two very provocative questions. What am I blocking? And how am I blocking? So it gets you past the superficial manifestation of the problem. If you say, every time I speak, I stutter, it blinds you to what's going on underneath. So, um, so would you rather use the term blocking instead of stuttering? Is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, I try to do that. I try to do that all the time because it, it focuses your awareness uh, 
on what's going on underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. Stuttering is an unfortunate word because it means too many things. I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, uh, next time you come to San Francisco, I'd like to invite you over for dinner. And uh, my wife's a good cook, and she's going to cook us all a cat. Now, would you like to come over to to my house and have a delicious cat? I mean, it's really good. If you've never eaten a cat, it's very tasty. So what kind of reaction would you have? Let me ask you, what kind of a reaction would you have if I told you that? I think I know where you're going with this. Well, What kind sure. of cat are you going to eat? Right. So, so, so I would say, well, you, what are you thinking? I'm talking about a catfish. <laughs> what, what were you thinking of? You're thinking of a pussycat. And that's the problem that you have with stuttering. It means too, too many different things. I mean, it, it means a lot of different things depending on the context. So unless you have words that are precise and allow you to truly observe what it is and label what it is that you're looking for in a way that's useful, uh, having the wrong term tends to create all kinds of confusion, such as inviting you over to eat a cat. You know, you may never come over and think, God, this guy John is weird, and I thought I knew what kind of person he was, but I don't want to see him anymore. I mean, he eats cats, and here I am thinking of catfish, which are pretty tasty. <laughs> okay. So, the, the other thing about stuttering, or blocking in this case, why are you stuttering? Because this is the term that people started out with. Um, speech pathology was developed at, as a discipline sometime around 1920. And I think it was developed, I think first degree in speech pathology was developed at the University of Iowa in America. And at that time, uh, up until that point, the, the, the field did not exist. Now, when they started to develop, to define the problem, they had to use whatever knowledge they had about human behavior and, you know, the, the, all the things that describe how people function and think and feel. Uh, they had to use what was known in 1920. Uh, and they did the best they could. And they had very, very, very bright people working on this. There was only one catch. They got it wrong. And they got it wrong because the kinds of things that are known now about human behavior were not really known then. And so they couldn't factor all that into, um, into the process. They couldn't take it all into account. And as a result, they incorrectly characterized what this problem was about. It wasn't just a speech problem. It was a total person problem. The, the difficulty of this, or, or the evolution of the problem, was that the professors wrote books, and, uh, and their students read the books, and that's what they believed, because who doubts the, uh, the veracity of a textbook? So some of those students... Uh, then became professors, and they wrote books, 
and they built on this basic incorrect knowledge and they wrote their books and then their students read those books and as a result over 90 years almost 100 years the 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 foundations of knowledge around this problem were built on incorrect or incomplete data there is a lot more that if you came at this from a brand new perspective there's a lot more that you can see and understand now than you could back in 1920 so it calls for constructing a different model or what we call a paradigm a different paradigm of stuttering that's big enough to hold the problem mm-hmm. that's big enough to hold the problem if you're trying to fit 10 pounds of information into a 5 pound box it's not going to work. There's a lot of information that won't fit in the box because the box says, well, you know, that's as much as we can take in. But if you broaden your paradigm, if you broaden your picture so that you can take into account more information, you open yourself up to all kinds of different uh, uh, new understandings and perceptions uh, about the material you're dealing with. Does that make sense? It makes total sense to me. It makes total sense. I'll tell you this, one final thing, one final comment about that, uh, and that is it's very difficult to change the establishment because the establishment has been following along on the same track for almost 100 years. And a lot of people's successes and a lot of people's beliefs and a lot of people's uh, status in the professional world uh, is all based around a particular set of... Uh, a particular knowledge set and if you come in and you start looking at things outside of that it can be very disturbing to the establishment and in fact it is back to you okay John you also have a great book called Redefining Stuttering as you said can you tell us about your book and maybe touch upon some of the main ideas behind it yeah let me um you know, let me, uh, while we're talking, let me call up the, the book, the table of contents of the book. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, this would be helpful because I can then refer to it as soon as I clear my screen here. The book first started out as a public speaking book for the National Stuttering Association. In 1985, uh, we had one of our annual conventions coming up and... Um, one of the problems we had was that the chapters that met every week or every other week uh, didn't really have anything to do. So I said, so I said to the executive director, uh, "Yeah, we need to have some kind of an activity." So I came up with a uh, a public speaking manual, which was which consisted of um, which consisted of ten talks that could be practiced uh, and would be uh, helpful for uh, people in NSA chapters who wanted to get involved in some kind of continuing program. And at the end, I had uh, one essay that I had written called uh, On Overcoming Performance Fears. Uh, well, over the 23 years, uh, I kept writing articles, and uh, then I was editor of the 
the NSA newsletter for almost 10 years, and uh, so I published a lot of them there along with everybody else's pieces. And at some point, this, this, this manual, which started out as 48 pages, has grown into uh, 485 pages. And it's divided into parts. Uh, part one is called How to Conquer Your Fears of Speaking Before People. That was the original title of the book. And this material I use in my public speaking classes now for the general public. Then the second part is called Understanding the Stuttering System. And that's when I get into the stuttering hexagon. Uh, so you can begin to understand the elements of the system and how they come together to create the problem. The uh, third part is called Changing the Hexagon, which has to do with how you begin to change the system. Uh, and I have lots of stories in the book, and I have not only my stories, but other people's stories. I also have uh, articles by other people that I thought were particularly good and relevant to what I was saying. Uh, then I have a section called Those Who Recover, and it's recovery stories. One of the problems I've, I've had with the professional community is that they have done very little, in my opinion, to study the people who have recovered. And I think that's crazy. I think if you were going to climb Mount Everest, in addition to the people uh, who didn't make it, uh, who you'd want to talk to. You'd also want to talk to people who got to the top to find out what they did or what they did differently from the other people. But there's very little written by or uh, about people who recover. So that's that's what's in the last section. Uh, in part four, then part five is a general section called Recent Editions in which I just put things that uh, I added to the book but didn't want to reformat and re repaginate the whole book uh, in order to put them in the proper place. But um, oh, and then I have in part six I have uh, a list of resources, uh, twelve books that I think will give you interesting and useful background uh, on subjects that that all relate to the stuttering blocking problem, and uh, a list of programs that if you live in the U.S. and maybe the U.K. Uh, and some other places that have to do with personal growth in general uh, that you can check into. So basically that's what the book is about. It's, uh, it's an attempt to define this problem in terms that truly reflect the problem and to provide some resources and some understandings and uh, some some paths of investigation that will allow you to uh, go off and start uh, finding out more about this. That give you a sense of it? Oh, yeah. If people want to reach you and learn more about you and your work or about your book that you just mentioned, how could they reach you? How could they contact you? Yeah, yeah. I have a number of email addresses, but the one that I think... Uh, I would prefer you use, and the easiest one to remember is Stutter Hexagon, S-T-U-T-T-E-R-H-E-X-A-G-O-N, Stutter Hexagon at AOL.com. Okay, Stutter Hexagon at AOL.com. 
That's correct. Great, John. You know, I wish we could keep this going on hours and hours and hours, <laughs> but I'm afraid I have and we to could, wrap this God. up. <laughs> I'm afraid I have it's, to wrap this up, and I don't want to take too much of your time. It, thank you very much for being here, for willing to add some value to those people who are listening to us right now. And it has been a great interview, a great value. I am confident all those people are going to really enjoy this. I also want to acknowledge you, Chasler, for, uh, I want to acknowledge you for doing this. Uh, one of the great things about the Internet is that it has uh, given anybody the resources to contribute to the solution and understanding of this problem. Uh, we're doing this over Skype, which is amazing because you can talk anywhere in the world now for free. And uh, you are really making use of this in a, in a very creative way. And uh, so I just want to acknowledge you for, for making use of the resources and uh, making a difference and bringing my story and other people's stories to uh, a, broader or, uh, a broader audience. I think that uh, this, this problem is being solved by the stuttering community, and it's because of efforts like this. So, bravo! Thank you, John. I'm glad if I'm being any help here and creating some value for the people who are listening to us right now, John. Anyways, I'm going to wrap this up, John, so... Do you have any final thoughts that you want to add? Well, it's our, uh, one of the questions you had asked, uh, you, you had listed was, uh, what is a successful recovery? Now, there's no question that uh, some people are going to be uh, more fluent than other people. I hate to use that word, but I'm going to anyway. Uh this is not about fluency. Recovery is not about fluency. Recovery is about being able to uh, to say what you want, the way you want to say it, when you want to say it. And if you get to, uh, if you're able to make major advances in all of those three things, a byproduct, and I emphasize byproduct of this, is that fluency comes uh, because you've done these things. If you try and just focus on fluency and don't change the system. Uh, well, let me leave you with a very quick analogy and then this will be, <laughs> be it. It's, it's, it's like having a ring with a one-carat stone. And so you look at this ring and you say, oh, that's a beautiful ring. And then one day somebody says, uh, hey, Chasler, I'm going to give you a two-carat diamond for free. And you say, oh, that's great. So I give, it, I give, you, uh, I give you the diamond and, uh, and you look at it and you say, whoa, that would be very impressive on my finger. But I don't want to have to buy a new setting so you pry out the one carat stone and you push the two carat stone in that setting and you look at it and you say man that is really cool you know that looks really nice 
And so for a couple of days, uh, you walk around flashing this two-carat diamond, and you feel very important and very confident and all that. And then one day you look down, and oh my God, the diamond is gone. The diamond is gone. All you have is this empty setting. What happened? Well, it's real simple. You changed the stone, but you didn't change the setting. <laughs> the setting was, was, was put together to hold a one-carat stone. So if you wanted the two-carat stone, you have to change the setting. That's, what's, that's what this whole issue of recovery is about around blocking and stuttering. That's what the stuttering hexagon is about. The stuttering hexagon is all about the setting that holds the speech. So before this segues into another long discussion, I think we probably should end. And so uh, it's been a pleasure. Once again, thank you very much for your time and for all the valuable information that you have shared with us today. Thank you very much.